You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. If you were here years and years ago, 2012, we actually preached through the book of Jonah and we took five weeks to preach through it. There was about three and a half hours of sermons. This morning, we're going to do the whole thing in one in about 35 minutes. It's insane. It's ridiculous. Uh, We're not going to be able to cover uh, every facet of what is a very complex, brilliantly written book, almost universally recognized as as a brilliant piece of literature. Uh, We're not going to be able to cover every single verse, obviously, but I'm going to try, attempt to get all the way through from start to finish, picking up on what I think the the main idea is, all right? Now, the problem with this is that probably... Probably, if you've been around church any length of time, or even maybe if you've never been to church, you, you have been sort of brought up to think about Jonah and to be distracted by something. So let's just do a little word association uh, experiment here. And as I do this, I'm going to have a bunch of kids' books coming up on the screen. So, all right, kids, we don't have many. You guys. Benji and Judah, if I say, or any kids, you guys down the back as well, if I say the word Jonah, what do you think of immediately? Huh? No. A fish. A bean? (laughs) Judah doesn't know because I refuse to read him these kinds of books, all right? Um, A fish, right? That's the thing that comes to mind. That's why all of the kids' books have the fish on the cover. And the problem with this is that, first of all, it distracts us from what the book is actually about. But the other thing about kids' stories, Bible stories for kids, is that almost always they try to moralize the message of the Bible. So I think there's one, I've got one here. Right, Bible, Bible story book of Jonah, teach children the importance of obedience. That's not what Jonah is about. The book of Jonah is about a prophet who is disobedient, but it's not about kids learning that they have to do what they're told. And so we sort of, we, 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 we do worse than not teaching them, we give them the wrong message, and then we grow up and we all just have this. So if you're here this morning, you've been around church a whole bunch of time, it's likely that you've never actually read Jonah in much depth, because from the beginning you understand what it's about. It's about a fish and being obedient. Actually, it's not about that. The fish gets one verse, all right? So four chapters, that's not, that's not a big deal, and I'm not going to spend much time talking about it this morning. But it's not about moralizing, uh, it's, it's not about moralizing our kids to make sure that they do what they're told. It's actually more, more, much more about a scandal. This book is about a, a massive scandal. It's about the scandal of God's love for his enemies, It's about the scandal of grace. And it's about the fact that we as humans need to come to terms with the fact that God is much more loving of our enemies than we are. That's the the whole point of the book. So if we pick it up just in the first couple of verses, we get introduced to the writer and the main protagonist. Verse 1 to 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up! Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. All right, so Jonah is the prophet. Remember, as with all of the prophets, this is not being a prophet is not mainly about predicting the future. 
Sometimes they do talk about what's going to come in the future, but it's mainly about speaking God's words. That's what a prophet does. He goes to God's people and says, this is what God says. And when we're talking about Old Testament prophecy, these men were literally speaking God's words. That's not something I can do this morning. Thus saith the Lord. Right? That's not my role. That was Jonah's role. His role, along with all of the Old Testament prophets, was to go to the people and say, this is exactly what God is saying to you. And if I'm wrong, you can kill me because I'm a false prophet. Now, the book itself is different. This is going to be the most different book we look at out of the 12. It's different because whereas all the other minor prophets are the recorded sermons, poems, um, sayings of this or that prophet, right? the collected works of this prophet, this is not the collected words of the prophet Jonah. We get five of his words in the Hebrew. I think it's eight in the English translation. We get, that's, the, that's all he says on God's behalf in the book. This is actually not a, a collection of his words, but a story about his deeds. And so it's a narrative. It's a, it's a story about what's happened to him. In all likelihood, it's written by him, and it's written in a satirical way. He's making fun of himself all through this book. Right? This is written after the fact. He can see how just ridiculous he was, how stupid, how laughable he was, and so he's writing it to make fun of himself. We're meant to laugh as we read this book. The original hearers would have laughed. They would have thought it was funny. We read the Bible and think, we, this has to be deadly serious. And so we don't laugh, but it's funny. And some of the jokes you don't get because we don't speak Hebrew, but I'll try and open it up for us. We should get at least one or two laughs out of this ridiculous book. Um, so it's written by Jonah, poking fun at himself. It's, it's, it's like a lot of these minor prophets. The context, remember, is Jeroboam II is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He's doing a great job politically. He's actually taking land back off the Assyrians, who are the superpower of the day. They're kind of distracted, fighting other wars. And so he's taking land. He's increasing profits. The economy is going very well. However, he doesn't care at all about the spiritual life of his people. He only cares about their prosperity. And so they're running after all kinds of other gods. That's the same context in this book as it was for most of the other prophets. And yet here we don't see Jonah speaking against his own people, but he is commissioned to go and speak against Nineveh. Nineveh is the huge metropolis in Assyria. It's this wildly prosperous and wildly um, tyrannical city. It's, a, it's just like a hotbed of everything that's bad about humanity. If you, if you, if you look, check, check this out. Actually, we'll, I'll read you a little bit from, from another prophet about what he says about Nineveh in a second. But the fact that this city is evil is driving God to call Jonah to go and preach to that city. So that's why he says in verse 2, go up, go to the city, preach against it because it's evil has come up against me. God is concerned with the evil of humanity. God is not just concerned with his own people and their behavior. He's concerned for all people because all people are made in his image. All people are made to reflect his glory, to, to, to reflect his character, his nature, his, his love. And these people are so far removed from what they were designed to be. And so he says, go and preach 
against that place. Call them to repentance. Now, verse 3 is where everything goes off the rails. This suddenly turns into something like if you were reading it for the first time, as you work through the Minor Prophets, you'd be like, what is this dude doing? Verse 3, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Here's what you need to know about the geography. Assyria is east, right? Nineveh is east. Tarshish is as far west as anyone knows about. It's probably Spain, right? So it's boat on the Mediterranean going as far as the world, like the world ends there. That's what he's done. And he's done that because he wants to get away from the Lord's presence. That's his response to being called to go and do what he is designed to do, that is, speak God's words. His response is to do the exact opposite. Now, why? Why has he done that? It's not just because he's disobedient and we should be obedient. It's not because he fears going into a dangerous land like we might fear going into some of the areas of the world where Christians are persecuted. It's not about that. It's simply this. Jonah hates the Ninevites. He hates them. And the reason he hates them is because Nineveh is, as God says, it's an evil city. It's a city full of evil people. They do really evil things. They're bloodthirsty. Listen to how Nahum says it. We're going to see Nahum in a couple of weeks' time. He's one of the minor prophets as well. This is a beautiful piece of devastating poetry. Woe to the city of blood. That's Nineveh. Totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. And it goes on and on. This poetic denunciation of this city of evil. And so that's why Jonah gets up and goes in the opposite direction. He hates them. He doesn't want to do anything with them. He doesn't want to have anything to do with them. But God is determined to get his message to this city. Irrespective of their behavior, irrespective of their nature, God loves them. God loves evil people. You need to know that this morning. If you are here and you are evil, you need to know God loves evil people. And so he he doesn't go get someone else. He doesn't just send a talking donkey He's like, no, Jonah, you are the man who's going to deliver this message. And so this is what he does, verse 4 to 9. But the Lord threw, I love that, I love that translation. The Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. Verse 5, the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God, their pagan sailors. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. 
Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots. The lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And then we're meant to laugh, because that's a joke. He's trying to escape from the God of the heavens and the sea and the dry land. What does that leave? Heaven, sea, dry land. What's left? Nothing. There is nowhere he can go to escape God. There is nowhere he can go. He he can go around the world as much as he likes and he'll never escape the God of the heavens and the sea and the dry land. He knows that God is Lord over all. That's one of the big themes of this book. God is sovereign over all things and he will use all things to achieve his purposes. You can't get away from him. So now he's desperate to escape God. He tried the ship thing. It doesn't work because God is everywhere. So he's so desperate to escape this eventuality of going and preaching to the Ninevites. We're going to say exactly why he's so desperate to escape that eventuality. It's more than just that he hates them, right? That's where it begins. But he's so desperate that he, 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 he commits the most desperate act he can commit in verse 12. Don't read this as him, as him being magnanimous or courageous. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you, for I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. He couches it in terms of, you'll be saved if I do this. But you're going to see several times in this book, he asks God to kill him. He wants to die. He would rather die than live the life that God is calling him to live. That's what he's trying to do here. He's committing suicide. There is no escape for him. He didn't have swimming lessons at Jerusalem High School, right? That didn't happen. The Jews were terrified of the ocean. They were desert-dwelling people, terrified. So he knows this is certain death. The sailors themselves, these pagan sailors who prove to be far more godly than he is, know it as well. And so they kind of... Pray to God. Say, we're really sorry about this. We, um, we know this is one of your guys. We, 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 don't, we don't want to kill anyone. In fact, first of all, they try and row against the storm as much as they can to try and avoid that eventuality. They're not getting anywhere. And so in the end, they dump him in. Listen to verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So once again, God thwarts Jonah. Jonah wants to die? No, you're not dying today. A great fish, God commands. Fish, huge fish, swallow Jonah. And then I'm going to keep him alive for three days and three nights in that belly of the fish. At this point, skeptics say, oh, this is a fairy story. This could never happen. And then some Christians say, no, like in 1851, there's a story of a guy who got swallowed by a whale shark and he was in there for 15 hours and then they got him out and he was all bleached, but he was all useless on both counts. None of that matters. Why? Because God is the God of the heavens and the earth and the sea. Like, it doesn't matter. 
what natural, like, it doesn't matter what natural law tells us about anything. Well, natural law tells us that you can't walk on water. Doesn't matter. Jesus is the Lord of the heavens and the earth and the sea. He walks on water. That's what he does. So, you, I mean, you just can't read the Bible without seeing God constantly intervening, constantly suspending laws of nature in order to fulfill his purposes. He wants the Israelites to walk across the Red Sea on dry land. It happens. Like, there's no arguments. The sea's not going, this is not natural. Like, it's, no. God says, do it, see? And it happens. He says, fish, swallow, Jonah. Jonah, stay alive while in fish. And it happens. The point is not the fish. The point is what happens in the fish. And so you see Jonah writing you know, after the account, remembering his experience in the fish. He writes out this psalm. It's really a collection of psalms about his his experience of repentance. This, this fish-swallowing Jonah episode, it's a, it's a severe mercy. It's a good phrase to remember whenever you're going through hardship. Severe mercy. It's severe, it hurts, but it's merciful because God is working out his purposes in and through it. Every Christian in this room knows that they have grown more spiritually during hard times than in easy times. It's just a, it, that's just a fact. And so this, this whole fish experience, which, by the way, would have been terrible for him, was actually a severe mercy. And so he writes this psalm. I just want to read out the psalm for us. Chapter 2, 1 to 9. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for, for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me, but I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will once more look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the theme over that whole prayer, that whole psalm or collection of psalms. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What belongs to the Lord? The heavens, the earth the sea, and salvation itself. All of it belongs to the Lord. And he grants it freely even to pugnacious prophets in their disobedience. And so you have this, I love this, you have this beautiful, almost romantic poem, this beautiful psalm, of God's mercy and grace. And then you jump straight into verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. 
Beautiful end. It's like watching the most romantic movie, and then right at the end, everyone gets slaughtered. All right? It's like it's, everything's covered in vomit. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry. It's meant to be funny. We're meant to see him as a pathetic figure. He tried to end his life by jumping in the sea. A fish swallowed him and then spat him out. And he spat him out, not in Tarshish. He spat him out back where he's meant to be, on the road to Nineveh. So he gets vomited, and then he, he hears God's commission once more. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He gets told to get up a few times in the book. It happens again. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. That's his whole job as a prophet. He's just telling him his whole purpose for living. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh. Right. Second time lucky. He went, actually went to Nineveh this time according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. And that's it. That was his big sermon. In the original language, it's five Hebrew words. This is the worst evangelistic rally campaign ever. Like, just think, like, imagine Billy Graham. God rest his soul. Getting vomited out of the Yarra, walking into the MCG and saying five words and then he's out. It's, it's the worst evangelistic campaign ever. Like he's probably still covered in vomit. I don't know what the fish was eating along with Jonah, but just vomit and fish guts and I don't, just terrible, stinking to heaven. He walks in, says five words, and that is all he does. He is literally sabotaging God's mission. He doesn't say who he is. He doesn't say what God he represents. He doesn't say what's wrong with the people of Nineveh. All he says is 40 days and you guys are done. This is never going to work. He's totally sabotaged it. It can't work. Well, there's, like, there's no promotional campaign. There's no letterbox drop. There's no social media. There's, there's, like, he's got no hype man. There's nothing. Just vomit-covered prophet who doesn't even want to be there saying five words and sitting down again. It's terrible. Chapter 3, verse 5. Next verse. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. In fact, from the king to the cows. From the king to the cows. They fast. They dress in sackcloth, which is to say, I'm like a poor beggar. I'm nothing. And who did they believe? Who did they believe? They believed God. Remember that, friends. Remember that whenever you have an opportunity to share the gospel and all of those doubts immediately 
pile into your head about, well, I don't know enough, and what if they ask me hard questions, and what if I, my voice breaks while I'm talking? Like, all of that, remember this. The vomited prophet said five words, and they believed God. It wasn't about believing Jonah. It's not about him. That's, he's written this book to let you know it's not about him. It's about God. He is sovereign. He is gracious. He works for the good of those who love him and are called, effectually called by him. Even the most evil people on earth, God is the hero of this story. They believed God. Their response is to believe, to declare a fast, to sit in ashes and sackcloth, kings down to cows, do the same. And then God's response to their response is verse 10. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. God is a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger, quick to relent. They repent and he relents. That is to say, he forgives them. He passes over their sin. He withdraws the devastation that they deserve. Their response was to repent. His response was to relent. And then Jonah's response, let's take a look at that, verse 1 of chapter 4. Jonah, however, was greatly displeased and became furious. The, The holy religious prophet of God sees this beautiful Beautiful turning, repentance, compassion, salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, restitution. All of this happens before his eyes and he is greatly displeased and became furious. So why did Jonah refuse to go to Nineveh? Why did he head in the opposite direction as far as he could go, as fast as he could go? It's because he hates Nineveh and because, verse 2 to 3, he prayed to the Lord, His last prayer was beautiful. This one sucks. Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And I hate you. I wish I was never born. That's why I didn't want to come here, because I knew you were gracious. And the irony is, the only reason he's alive is because God is gracious. So he wants the grace, he just doesn't want these guys to have it. Now, he's a ridiculous figure, and he's written it so that we will think he's ridiculous. But I just wonder whether we don't look a whole lot like this at times. Like... You hear God is a God of grace. Wow, that's better than a God of pure justice because I know that I suck and that I deserve death. So, um, yes, thank you, God, that you're gracious to me, that you keep forgiving me even though I am who I am. 
Praise God that he's gracious. But maybe it would be better for everyone if you weren't gracious to those people. Like those, those serial killers and those pedophiles. Maybe just hold back the grace on those people and, and, and reserve it for, you know, like normal people. Maybe deserving people. The whole purpose of this book is to highlight God's scandalous grace. Let's just get it right. It is scandalous. It's a scandal to take a city like Nineveh and then as soon as they turn from there, what they've done, say, okay, I forgive you. And the point is, it's a scandal to send a fish to save a prophet like Jonah. The whole point of this book is to highlight God's scandalous grace in contrast to Jonah's prejudicial unforgiveness. And then I think the point of this, as with all of God's word, is to just turn the mirror around to face us and to show us, well, how are you you doing with this? Who are the people that you want God to withhold his grace from? I wondered whether I had time to get to this illustration of what I'm talking about, and I'm not sure that I do, but I'm just going to do it anyway. So his, I got this story. I hadn't heard of this story, um, but I got it from a guy named Tim Mackey, and he... he um, some of you who are older might know this story because it's a, it's a story that went viral back in the 80s before things really went viral. It went viral. And so um, some of you know the history of, of um, in, in Ireland, the Troubles, um, the, the history of the Republic of Ireland um, fighting against the colonial power of, uh, of England and the eventual... Uh, the eventual splitting, rather like um, Israel and Judah, the split to Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland, and, and in the 80s, just the, the constant threat of violence and really of terrorism, um, of conflict between the IRA, um, the Irish Republican Army, and the, the British um, troops who were, um, who were occupying the north of Ireland. And it was just really, I mean, I, and I was only very young, but, but from what I hear, it was just a constant tension, like what's going to happen next? Where are the bombs going to go off next? What's, you know, it, it, was, it was geopolitical chaos. And um, in 1987, in a, a little place called uh, Enniskillen, there was, um, the, there was on that day uh, quite a large Protestant population in the, this is in the north of Ireland, and uh, they were coming up, it, it, it had come to Remembrance Day, which we celebrate ourselves, remembering those who fought and died in the, in the world wars, the great wars, and uh, on this day, there was a guy named um, Gordon Williams, who, uh, well, let me read it to you. This is what happened on the day. I'm going to read from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Ma- Amazing About Grace, which is a, which is a good book. So in 1987, an IRA bomb went off in a small town west of Belfast in Eskillen. Amid a group of Protestants who had gathered to honour the war dead on Veterans Day, Remembrance Day. 11 people died and 63 others were wounded. 
We have a picture. There it is. What made this act of terrorism stand out from so many others was the response of one of the wounded, Gordon Wilson. I think I said Williams. Gordon Wilson, a devout Methodist who had immigrated north from the Irish Republic to work as a draper, making curtains and stuff. He had a shop just uh, across the square from, from where the bomb went off. The bomb buried Wilson and his 20-year-old daughter under five feet of concrete and brick. Daddy, I love you very much. Oh, this, I think of India when I read this. Um, were the last words Maurice uh, spoke, grasping her father's hand as they waited for the rescuers. She suffered severe spinal and brain injuries and died a few hours later in hospital. And then this is what sent this video viral. You can get it on YouTube. It's a, it's a BBC um, interview on the night that this happened. A newspaper later proclaimed, no one remembers what the polit politicians had to say at that time. No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he confessed. His grace towered over the miserable justifications of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson said, I have, I have lost my daughter, but I bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring Murray Wilson back to life. I shall pray tonight and every night that God will forgive them. And the BBC later said that the world wept as they saw that interview take place. And, uh, and he went on to become a, a senator, I think, uh, in the government. He worked towards peace relations between the IRA and the British. He, um, he publicly, one year after on the anniversary, called the IRA, IRA together and, and, and publicly forgave them for what they'd done. There's a book written after the fact, where I've got a quote, which really brings up the point home. <clears throat> and this is a woman writing who was there to witness it. I think she might have been in the government, actually. She, she says, his words shamed us, caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we were used to. They brought stillness with them. They carried a sense of the transcendent into a place so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But he had his detractors and, unbelievably, his bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive, they shouted. What kind of father are you who can forgive your daughter's killers? It was as if they had never heard the command to love and forgive before. It was as if they were being spoken to for the first time in the words of humanity and Christ had never uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As one church-going critic said to me on the subject of Gordon Wilson, surely the poor man must have been in shock, as if to offer love and forgiveness is a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. It's from a book called Love in Chaos. The reason that the world wept with Gordon Wilson wasn't just that his 20-year-old daughter died squeezing his hand, saying that she loved him. It wasn't just because that of the bigger picture, the tragedy of war between the IRA and the British, 
the reason they wept, the reason they were shocked, the reason he received hate mail, all of that was because his words were so counterintuitive. It's not right. It's scandalous. And this is how Jonah feels. And before we totally throw him under the bus, can we just admit that we kind of feel this way a little bit too? And maybe at times we feel like this a whole lot. All right, let's finish off the book. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Verse 4 to 5. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer him. He just walks off. Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Right? He's, he's kind of hoping maybe God's just going to smoke him anyway. Maybe God's like we are and he's like, yeah, it's okay. And then actually, that's not okay. He's gone off to see if what he preached is going to come true. One of the great jokes of this book is, is certainly not evident to us um, because we don't read the Hebrew, but you need to know when, when Jonah goes and preaches, I think I've got what he says in chapter 3, when he goes and preaches and says, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished, the Hebrew word there for demolished can also mean transformed. So this is a word play. Jonah goes and preaches and says, you're all going to die. And what, what God is actually saying through him is, you're all going to be saved. You're all going to be transformed. So actually what Jonah preaches comes true. It's just in the, way, the total opposite way of what he was hoping for. It's another trick that, jo- that God plays on Jonah. And it's all to, to just make it really obvious the contrast between who God is, what God's heart is, and Jonah, that is Jonah representative of all of us. And then the book gets weird right up to the end. Let's just say it. It gets weird. It's less weird if we see it as being funny. All right, so verse 6. Then the Lord God appointed a plant. So he appointed a fish. Now he appoints a plant. And it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble, very much like the fish. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. So he's furious, and now he's greatly This is the only point where he's like, I've got my happy face on, right? Miserable, furious, happy. Because he's got a plant now. He's got a bit of shade. So this is, this is what I mean. He's like a two-year-old. Greatly pleased. When dawn came the next day, God appointed first a fish, then a plant, now a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. It's another joke God's playing on it. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. Fish, plant, worm. Wind. The scene beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. Kill me. I'm happy. Kill me. He said, it's better for me to die than to live and I hate you and I wish I was never born. All right? Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh? 
which is more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and left, as well as many animals. And that's it. That's the end of the book. Was anyone expecting something a bit more? Like, well, what happens to Jonah? What? And what happens to Nineveh? And why do we care about their animals? As well as many animals? It's funny. It's poking fun at, at Jonah. He wants Nineveh to be demolished, but when his plant gets demolished, he gets angry. He cares more about a plant than these people who are made in God's image. That's what God's trying to say to him. You're caring about a plant. It's just a plant. They grow up and die all the time. These are people. These are people that I've created to reflect my glory. God cares about every single, like everyone in this room, irrespective of how holy you are, irrespective of whether you're a Christian or not. God loves you. You're made in his image. That means you have infinite Value. That is the basis and the only basis for universal human rights. You're made in God's image. So how can you care about a plant more than people? Not just people, it's 120,000 people, and they're people who don't know me. They don't know left from their right. He's not saying they're not moral. They know what they've done wrong. That's why they've repented. He's saying they don't know the way to me. Can't you care for them? Can't you guide them? Can't you disciple them? And by the way, there's a whole bunch of animals as well. He's saying, like, even the animals are worth more than your plant. Even the animals were fasting in response to your five-word sermon. This whole thing is put together to illuminate the scandalous grace of God, his Magnificent love for creatures created in his image. We saw last week and really emphatically last week that, by the way, I just loved preaching that sermon last week. I, was just, I, I felt like I was out of my body sitting there with you guys. I was, it was just, I was just carried with it. Like the idea and the big idea from last week that God loves his enemies and that the the, the strongest and clearest and most beautiful expression of that is God dying for his enemies in the Lord Jesus. That is just mind-blowing. You will not find a God like that. There has never been one. There has never been one invented. This God of scandalous grace is the only God who sees his enemies and has compassion on them, compassion enough to die for them. And so, listen, if you're here this morning, and I, and I, I know and I've experienced this myself, hearing this message of God's universal grace and love, it is so easy so easy for you to say, yes, that's great for all of those other people but me. I'm the caveat. There's a little disclaimer in the fine print at the bottom of this new covenant, and it says, except Jono, 
Because why? Why do we think that? Because we know what we've done. I don't know what you've done. Could be terrible. I don't know. You, my sense is everyone else is pretty, going pretty well. But I know what I've done. I know the thoughts that I've had. I know my habitual sin. I know my brazen addiction to selfishness and greed and lust and self-serving and like all of those things that I hate and I love. I know all of that viscerally. So yes, God loves even the Ninevites. God loves even you guys, but leave me out of it. What I need to do is do what I need to do is do and do and do some more and, and just with white knuckles try and climb my way back up into the realm of God's favour. That's what I need to do. So by all means, when the preacher prays, echo it in your heart and receive the love and forgiveness and salvation of God, but I'll be on the outside where I belong. I get that. But the person who feels that way is failing to recognize the height and depth and breadth of the love of God which surpasses knowledge. The reality is that the death of Jesus on the cross was big enough, powerful enough, cosmic enough that nothing you could do could get you away from God and his grace. As soon as you say, but I've sinned too much, you're jumping in the boat and going to Tarshish and saying, I, I need to get away from God's presence. The problem is God's presence is there and his presence is grace. You can't escape from God's grace. So all that's left for me to do is to pray for us. And all I'm going to pray is that as this Jonah, this ridiculous Jonah figure has opened his mouth, that rather than hearing all my nonsense, you would be hearing God and believing God and turning to God just as Nineveh did from kings down to the cows. Let's pray together.